Hello and welcome to Freaky Trigger and the Lollard's Pop. This week we're doing a special episode, uh, although in a way all our episodes are special. <laughs> and uh, this particular special uh, will be on children's books. Um, we're starting from the very beginning of literature aimed at children with uh, a delve into morality itself. Uh, we might uh, first start, though, as it is about time for children to be going to bed with a lovely bedtime story. <coughs> the English Straw Peter, or Pretty Stories and Funny Pictures. When the children have been good, that is, be it understood, good at mealtimes, good at play, good all night and good all day, they shall have the pretty things Merry Christmas always brings. Naughty, romping girls and boys tear their clothes and make a noise, spoil their pinafores and frocks, and deserve no Christmas box. Such as these shall never look at this pretty picture book. A, uh, <laughs> something to think about now. Um, and and what book, what book is that, that that good girls and boys could get to look at there, Mark? Well, the English title for it is Shockheaded Peter. Um, the German is uh, Struvelpeter. <laughs> Struvelpeter. Uh, which means the same thing. It's yeah. uh, there's a, a hideous picture on the cover, um, which I'm showing you, but obviously the listeners will have to imagine of. Uh, uh, or they could use Google Image. Actually. Oh, they could use Google Image. Yes, obviously Struvelpeter is quite hard to actually guess how it's spelled, unless you're German, in which case it's simple, and mm. you know it already, I suspect. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, it's it's um, basically good children. Um, nice things happen to good children and one of the nice things is that they get to read this book in which horrible things happen to horrible children. Or, or well, anyone, <laughs> almost, indiscriminately. Um, before we get into that uh, and, and further into our own dark morality, uh, I should introduce who we have here. I'm uh, Hazel Robinson uh, and for some reason I've been put in charge of this. Uh, we also have Mark Sinker. Hello. Uh, who has just read you a threat? Um, Julia Heller, evening, and Tom Ewing. Hello, uh, and we'll be guiding you through the difficult maze of uh, early philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this this is a book that I I wouldn't say was exactly brought up with. But I was certainly very aware of it. But it was in the house. It was in my and you tried to stay away from my, it. It was in my my dad's parents' house, and so it was around as yeah. And and it was this sort of interesting, scary book, which has one very, very particularly horrible story in which, it, which it was, we we shall cut out of my copy. This particular story, <laughs> which we'll go into. I had I had this book as well. Um, as a small boy, I think I actually had a copy of one. My parents censored it uh, because parts of it were too terrifying and I was quite into the other parts, but I was sort of aware that certain stories ended quite abruptly where they cut pages out to spare me. Spare you the actual moral? Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah they just, in fact, scrubbed out all the morals. Um, well, we definitely had a copy lying around that I'm pretty sure it's still at my mum's house because I do have younger siblings who benefit from this sort of education <laughs> I think um, 
Have any of them sucked their thumbs? <laughs> I don't think they have. Yeah, I'm certainly... not sure how much we can put that down. That was always my favourite story, though. From that yes, book, yeah. Because it's the most gruesome. The Dr. Heinrich Hoffmann, and he's called Doctor on the cover here, on the cover of the copy that I've um, obviously uh, uh, acquired completely <laughs> legally. Oh, yes. it's, on, it's on Project Gutenberg. Yeah, oh, is I, it? think, okay. I think that's where I've, I've uh, got it from. Um, so, yes, it is, in fact, legal to, to yes, print it off. That, that's fine. You but acquired was, it completely legally, as I said. He was a doctor of, of psychology in the uh, early 19th century. And it, I think it's published in 1846 in German. And uh, he wrote and illustrated it. Actually, I'm not entirely sure if he did illustrate it, but, you know, got the illustrations for it. Um, because the books that were around he thought were too twee or too didactic or not sort of somehow unsuitable for children because they were too boring. I mean, clearly they could hardly have been... He can't have been thinking that they were not boring enough <laughs> having published this <laughs> book. So well, well, I, I don't know. I, I think he probably could have thought that they were... Uh, not boring enough. Perhaps, perhaps he felt that they they weren't instructing in the correct manner. But I'm not. I'm a little bit unconvinced that instruction is is, is the, the point. Aim. I think uh, because, as he says at the beginning, bad children don't get to read this book, so they don't. The people. Oh, so need... it, it's more a, a voyeuristic gloating yes, exercise. That's of, right. Ha ha! You yes. have no thumbs because of the the <laughs> famous um, uh, oh, well, we... long-legged scissor man. I think we better get actually read the whole thing yes, not me, just me keep teasing the listeners the story of little sucker thumb one day mama said conrad dear i must go out and leave you here but mind now conrad what i say don't suck your thumb while i'm away the great tall tailor always comes to little boys that suck their thumbs and ere they dream what he's about he takes his great sharp scissors out and cuts their thumbs clean off and then you know they never grow again so she goes out. Mama had scarcely turned her back. The thumb was in. Alack, alack. <laughs> the door flew open. In he ran, the great long red-legged scissor man. Oh, children, see, the tailors come and caught out little sucker thumb. Snip, snap, snip, the scissors go. And Conrad cries out, oh, oh, oh. Snip, snap, snip. They go so fast that both his own thumbs are off at last. Mama comes home, there Conrad stands and looks quite sad and shows his <laughs> hands. Ah, oh, said my mama, I knew he'd come to naughty little sucker thumb. Um, yes, and uh, he does stand there with his little hands out and no thumbs left. I always thought he looked more um, nonplussed than sad, but... Uh... Well, he was probably quite yeah. confused. This person he'd never heard of until this morning yeah. had burst into his house, chopped off his thumbs, and apparently that's okay. No one can say that the punishment there doesn't fit the crime. <laughs> yeah, I remember posting that picture on, on ILX and getting a, a really excited and shocked response from people who'd never seen the picture because as the tailor's rushing in his hat is falling off and he's so keen on cutting off this small boy's thumb well he he just <laughs> really wants people to put their sleeves in their mouth instead as this generates more <laughs> business for him um uh, Strawel peter or Strawel peter is uh, of course a 
famously terrifying example of uh, a morality tale, uh, but of course they go back far earlier um, than merely Victorian morbidity. Uh, there was plenty of morality tales in, in Greek myth, although their relation to what we might describe as moral <laughs> um, today might be more debatable. Um, I mean, I think that the the stuff, because I used to get um, Aesop's fables have now been repackaged as kind of the sort of first children's book and the, the thing, and I don't know if they were actually meant for Greek children. They were just kind of like sort of elementary little parables mm. um, of I don't know I mean I've got no I, it's quite hard to kind of reconstruct how they were how they were created or put together and I always found them very didactic as a child I I was was read them a lot and kind of there were a few that I sort of thought oh that's quite clever like with the the, the, the stork who f- put stones in the pot of water and sort of and I think they're kind of you know they they sort of teach you about physics or that kind of thing as much as about morality but um i always thought of um those as more of a sort of starting off point for discussions of the subject rather than um instructive um tales yeah i i and they're not i don't think they were meant for children no i don't i don't think i mean so. it, the, the the shift of it there's a there is a really interesting and obvious shift once literacy starts becoming widespread of books that were clearly written for adults like um, Bunyan or um, Gulliver's Travels uh, start to be um, handed to kids instead because when there weren't very many people reading then the books you got were the books you got but once there were lots of people reading then the first books that were around seemed a bit too simple or do you see and Aesop is kind of like the world emperor of do you see yes and uh, and I think that makes him uh, terrific as far as illustrators go so that every generation you get and um, someone who's drawing great great pictures for Aesop but only a small number of the stories um, still feel they, they either feel as if they belong to an age that's no longer um, relevant because there's something to do with slaves and kings and so you can't really work out how you're meant to respond to them or they're very sort of yeah hit you on the head with a very obvious point or as you say there are some which are kind of interesting and subtle and there are ones that you've heard much too often like the boy who cried wolf and then weird ones that you don't really still quite understand <laughs> which made a lot of sense in Greece <laughs> 2,000 years ago but point has been lost mm. the, but uh, um, the what what happened I suppose the the arrival of mass literacy I mean and printing generally is very associated in at least in northern Europe with Protestantism and the the relationship between becoming a responsible adult and morality and being able to read they're all totally intersecting with each yeah. other and what you actually get is lots of books where learning to read and learning to be good uh, are, are made equivalent. Yeah, yeah. Made, are interlocked in the same um, uh, the same exciting package. And in in Britain, the pioneer of this was a man called John Newbery in the beginning of the 18th century, who who just pioneered small books, pocket books, basically for children, 
um, publishing and writing a lot of them over about 50 years and becoming very wealthy and successful as a result, of which the, the one which is still in the language is the tale of Goody Two-Shoes, where, I mean, nobody really knows who Goody Two-Shoes was, but the phrase Goody Two-Shoes is still yeah. one that we use. And, I mean, basically she was an orphan who only had one shoe, and um, by by dint of being good and what lear- happened then? learning to read, she got given another shoe <laughs> and also got to marry a wealthy widower and uh, became a teacher and a hurrah. And, I mean, it did, the book is pretty much that. I, I'm not really parodying it by saying it like that. Um, she's you called... can't pick lottery numbers <laughs> unless you're literate. And But that was, yeah, that's... Uh, and so a lot of the um, the dynamic of this is about are we just going to make these books um, a sort of programming to make children good at the same time? Or, because that's possibly a bit boring if you're a writer, are we going to play around with that, that idea? Or, or ditch it. I mean, because Hans Christian Andersen is... Uh... Is he contemporary with Stuart Peter or a decade or two he, before? He's contemporary with Stuart Peter. I mean, he's around, he's, he, yes, the, the early, mid-19th century. Yeah, and he, it, his thing is, you know, that I was, um, I have a three-year-old and he was very eager for fairy tales the other day and I was trying to remember them and I thought, what was a fairy tale I liked when I was a kid? Oh, yes, the tinderbox. <laughs> and, and tried to remember the tinderbox and uh, ended up kind of, all I could remember was the dogs with the enormous eyes um, and a witch. So I went and looked stuff online. And, of course, there's no moral in it at all. Basically, the, the, the soldier in the tinderbox um, is sent down into a tree by a witch to get some a tinderbox. He gets the tinderbox. Then when the witch says, give me the tinderbox, he kills her, keeps the tinderbox, uh, uses it to summon three demonic dogs who kidnap a princess for him to marry. And then he rides off into the sunset after avoiding execution. Hurrah! <laughs> and, and Hans Christian Andersen's kind of whole MO is um, let's not make these kind of tales moral, let's just make them thrill-powered. Um, and so Stuart Peter actually is kind of on a continuum of, well, you know, you can have the thrill power but still have a a, a moral or quasi-moral element in there and not end up like um, like the, the, the writers of morality stories who are still going very strong. I think that's true, although I think there's also a sort of tendency for each generation to process the previous generation's um, thrill-seeking rule-breakers to actually re-inject um, moralism back into them, or a degree of it, to re- to interpret their um, taboo-breaking as, well, actually, if you look at it in a sort of... in a, in a more general sense, then you see that, that this person is standing up for the little guy or... Um, yeah, telling yeah. A, a bigger story about how society should work or something like that so that the moralism is quite hard to dodge over time. It seems to seep back into, um, you know, m- most of the wilder stuff. But then that's... And obviously you can read almost anything into anything, particularly very basic stories like the ones that are, are given to children and especially ones um, like uh, fairy tales or, or like Hans Christian Andersen where obviously they can be... Reinterp- they they can and have been reinterpreted many many times. Um, in the sort of Angela I, I, I think and essentially it. any story where someone starts in one position and ends in another position, whether they've 
tumbled from a good place to a bad place or risen from a bad place to a good place then you've got the beginning of a potential morality because there's something that they did where you're saying well that was the good thing they're being rewarded because they did this because they were clever or because they were shrewd as i suppose you could call her or i mean i'm not sure the 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 um tinderbox soldier what he's brave i suppose yeah yeah um candy, candy with a sword <laughs> Well, he doesn't do much killing himself. I suppose he does kill the witch. But no, once, he, once, he, once he chops off the witch's head, I don't think he... He basically then spends all the money that the dogs bring him and then marries a princess once he's run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> there's, 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 there's few redeeming features of the soldier in the tinderbox, as I learned when attempting to summarise the story for my three-year-old. <laughs> and had to kind of add in subplots about, a, you know, a, a, the landlord was very evil. And that's, that's why he didn't pay his rent. <laughs> but, but were you doing that to make yourself feel better or to make Lytton feel better? Well, I, I was doing it to make... Lytton is kind of um, at a stage where he, he believes quite strongly in the idea that if you do naughty things, no good will come of it. Or he doesn't necessarily believe it quite strongly, but he's, he's kind of figured this out and is quite keen to see it apply... To in drag. stories and in real life, and particularly, <laughs> yeah, particularly to his younger brother, um, who is who is at a, a sort of pre-moral stage that has a strong notion of fairness, uh, <laughs> which is that whatever the three-year-old gets to do, I get to do. Um, so w- when we were at the seaside the other day, he um, there was a there was a boy who was throwing stones at seagulls, and um, we had told Lytton earlier, don't throw stones at seagulls. So Lytton stood up very, very properly and said, no, you naughty boy, not throw stones at seagulls. And we had to... Well, we, we, we said, OK, you know, yes, he is being naughty, but then it, then he started throwing stones at people, so luckily his naughtiness was then proven. Because <laughs> um, I'm not totally sure. It's one of these things where you kind of, you're policing the activity, and it's kind of like, well, look, don't throw the stones at the seagulls because it's a bit mean to the seagulls. But on the other hand, throwing stones at seagulls isn't actually the worst crime in the world, especially he's got almost no chance of hitting them because they're quite <laughs> agile and, and good. So, so they throw kind of sea- skulls at, uh, don't throw stones at seagulls. They might attack you subsequently would probably be a... Well, that, that introduced an element of, of, of morality or if, you know, because you've been kind to the seagulls, they all formed a patchwork quilt for you when you got swept out to sea or something. That's the sort of Aesop's fable. Whereas in reality, it just means they realise you're a mug and they will beat you up for your chips. Yes. Yeah, well, they did indeed come and uh, gobble all our chips (laughs) once we'd left them alone for half a second. Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, it seems to me that there's there's two, there are these stories which set themselves up really as descriptions of how the world are, how the world is, and there's stories which set themselves up as, as... sort of mm, technologies to produce the world as it ought to be and that they are they they bleed into one another quite a lot because actually any given uh writer is probably playing with the boundaries of it or not even thinking about it very clearly just like writing the story as it comes but um the i I think that struggle peter is is written to entertain rather than to instruct but and I, I, I seriously don't think that it, it's ever actually been slapped down as a, because it is, to the the gap between its scary grotesqueness and the stories is too is too ridiculous because he's just sucking his thumb. 
so being mutilated physically for sucking your thumb it's just it's absurd but and I, in I suspect the, that, that is i mean because it's mid uh 1800s isn't it it's a yes it's, yeah so six, yeah. mutilation especially of children who would run into various mishaps was not unusual. I mean, now we're like, oh my god, no thumbs. But uh, I mean, particularly if it was sort of circa the Industrial Revolution, um, there might be quite. I mean, I don't actually know how industrialized Germany was at the time and whether they had factories, but there probably would be quite a few kids with missing fingers and limbs. Yes, that's true. I don't mean that it's fantastic, but I still don't think they were going to. Pfft. What's a finger? You know, lots of people. Well, no, I, d- I, I don't think that's the idea, fingers, though. Is so it? I don't care if I lose mine. Yeah, but it's not like. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not like a kind of letter from your bank. Don't. <laughs> you have sucked your thumb. We've noticed that. So <laughs> we're going to take a thumb. I mean, in, in, in British terms, it's, it's a year or two after the great kind of test case for Victorian sentimentality about children, which is the death of little Nell in the old curiosity shop and the the idea that this is this is when you know the nation is kind of gripped by the plight of a little child and who then dies um and it's now become such a watchword for kind of sentimental nonsense that i don't think i've it's it's one of the dickens that i've actually always avoided um it has a it has a terrific evil dwarf who <laughs> called quilp who um gets cha- at the end gets chased through the streets and falls off a bridge and drowns for the crime of being a dwarf. No, he is actually quite mean, though. So, but few. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that means it's not disabled at all. No, um, oh, sizest even. Uh, and when's the water babies? Uh, the water babies is the eighteen forties as well. I would have thought that little now was actually a little later. Well, Curiosity shops eighteen forty five. Oh, is it okay? Right, then is it quite early Dickens? Yeah. Oh right, okay. Um, Yes, the the Water Babies is round about the same decade, and the Water Babies. The Water Babies is it's also. I mean, it's very very muscular Christian and um, long, and um, it has Terrible. sentimental. It has lots of sentimental elements, but it's also quite frightening. Um, but the other thing that, the other um, thing which is uh, from that decade is the first publication of Edward Lear's Limericks, which is also eighteen forty six. Which was, I mean, I think it was published in a private edition that year and wasn't widely publicly available for another, for a couple of decades. Um, and I think that the one sort of territory of writing which emerges in the 19th century, which is free from this uh, need to free from this tendency to be moralised is the area called nonsense and I think that nonsense is actually a very very it was a very powerful word when it first arrived it it, it's, it first arrived really as a sort of project for selling things I think pretty much with Leah mm. um, but it's also it's a central word in the Alice stories Yeah. and what's key to the Alice stories is that uh Lewis Carroll was Christian and a mathematician and thought that those two things locked together in real life. But in Wonderland and in Looking Glass Land, what was interesting about them and exciting to read about was that uh, mathematical and physical logic failed, but so did moral logic. 
yeah. and the thing that actually outrages little Alice, who is after all only seven, most, is when, for example, people are punished before the trial, before they've had a trial, or punished for things which are just ridiculous, or um, the uh, the power structure appalls her, to put it in a sort of rather absurdly political way. But that is basically what what she's reacting against, which is which is the Queen just capriciously saying, cut off his head when someone's done something wrong or done nothing wrong. And the whole of the end of the first book is about um, whether... Uh, you can judge whether you can punish people before you've decided they've done it or not. And uh, her word to sort of cut this off and to describe it all the time is nonsense. Mm. This is nonsense. This is this is a her, the description of a world where morality breaks down. But of course, in order to describe a world where morality breaks down, a nonsense world, you get to describe all the bad things that's happened that have happened, and that is why. Uh, that's what's um, potentially exciting about them is that you're describing crimes which don't get punished even though it probably gets tied up with a sort of neat and then they all woke up and everything was okay ending but the ending is like right off at the end and you get to enjoy it right up to the end yeah and there's um, Julia you will know about these probably in a sort of vomit-inducing, rage-fueled way. Um, there are sort of similar uh, or semi-similar attempts at modern nonsense uh, like the uh, Lemony Snicket books, uh, a series and you've sort of grimaced at me, uh, which I wasn't surprised by. Um, uh, both Julia, well, Julia works in a bookshop and uh, I, I have and no doubt will again work in bookshops um, and uh, these these things populate them. Um, a series of unfortunate events is uh, based on a blindingly, uh, bluntly stated premise of unfortunate things continue to happen um, rather in a Greek tragedy style, except with a a senselessness to them, and a, and a level of voyeurism. I suspect is sort of. It's, there's such a it's they're formulaic to a point that's almost unfunny. Um, there's thirteen instalments of this. There's thirteen different books. Is that? Yes, yeah. Um, they're not continuous. They're, they're standalones, but um, they are. There's thirteen of them, because what other number could we think of <laughs> for very difficult things to happen to very very nice children? Um, the the children are horrifically nice. They're, they're all nice and brave and good. Unbelievably clever. Yes. Um, obviously, the sort of um, child you would like yours to aspire to be. Um, they're just effortlessly good and yes, it's delicious. and the world quite rightly says go and slave away in that basement you horrible example <laughs> so, but, but what actually happens in, in uh, I mean, it, maybe tell the story of one of them so. in the first book the kids are orphaned um, in mysterious circumstances and it uh, commences the, with them living with a uh, banker who, or, or a financier or, or somebody who is in charge of I think they do say he's a banker um, who's mm -hmm. in, in charge of their parents' affairs or the, the s estate 
from which they come from. I've completely forgotten. Baudelaire, uh, Baudelaire estate. Um, and then the children who all have really improbable names. Um, Violet. Violet and Klaus yeah. and somebody else. What's the little one called? Uh, Klaus, is, Klaus is the, in the, the middle, middle one. one yeah, Violet's the slightly sexy one. Yeah. Which is always I, just I'm, uncomfortable. I'm not sure, I'm not sure that's meant that, to. Um, in in the books, she certainly was in the film. But um, I don't know because she is the one that somebody tries to marry. Yeah, but I think that's more in a. Sort uh, the, yeah, that is more in a Victorian um, money grabbing manner. What, what's what struck me about them looking at them in bookshops? I've never never cracked one open precisely because I sort of thought, well, look, this is this is a pastiche of something that existed a long time ago and no one even cares about anymore particularly so it's 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 this total indulgence of writing this kind of parody of victorian storytelling and gothic melodrama and such like which what 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 do kids get out of it i i mean we were talking about this earlier and i said i think that many of them are bought unread Quite possibly, because people will just go for um, whatever's popular. Because if so many people have read it, clearly this is a good thing. We'll go for that. Um, I do think there is something to be said for um, basically every generation tries to repackage things for themselves and kind of uh, skew them to their liking and to go um, in a direction and kind of go away that um, is easier it's just a, it's just a repackaging i think um which in itself i don't think is bad it just if it's maybe it's just the current crop of these things that's just so glib there's no grip to them there's no point to them um it's just I mean, I, I, yeah i'm not totally sure what 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 you get extra out of reading this thing with its kind of pastiche period trappings that you wouldn't get out of reading 12 books of Beast Quest which <laughs> absolutely nothing Beast Quest uh, would would very much top a series of unfortunate events I mean the, the, a series of unfortunate events goes to like Hardy-esque lengths to abuse its uh, darling um, protagonists uh, by the end of one if you've managed to not hate these children uh, you're doing quite well, and uh, by the end of two, you're suddenly thinking, "Yeah, they're pretty uh, much I mean, getting what's coming uh, to them." Exactly. I mean, is the point <laughs> that you're kind of on the side of the baddie? Yeah, and uh, they, they, do they, they survive the unfortunate events, presumably. Yes. Yes. So the, the series ultimately, the series. They, ultimately, in each one, they come out triumphant. Without no, no, there's no triumph. You come out and you survive, but then you're beaten around the head with something else. The the events they they, ha, they have misfortune follows them. Um, I, I I assume maybe it's resolved at the end. I I must admit I haven't made it that far um, because I would probably be forced to jump off something quite tall in the middle. Um, but the uh, the the events are senseless in in the way that Hardy novels have sort of. Because it sounds it sounds to me like the model of it is Dessard's Justin. Uh, yes, which is yeah, no. again written because he he thought the books where nice things happen to nice people was unacceptable. So he wrote a book where a nice girl has all sorts of horrible things. Well, everything yes. horrible, and Ever. because he's disarmed, he could think of quite a lot of horrible things, probably more than the lemony, lemony snicket people. 
Um, yes, I, I wouldn't credit Lemony Snicket with with uh, the creativity or, or <laughs> revolutionary choix de vivre of uh, the Marquis de Sade. Um, but there, there certainly is an element. Of this, uh, I actually, I would say they are a bit more like um, Misery Memoirs uh, on a, a obscenity of weepiness Except level. with this very thin veneer of um, just winking irony. Yeah, this is... A little, little bit of funny. steampunk to it. Yeah. Yeah. And then back to the misery. It's the, the irony for, for to help adults get over thinking. Because irony, not really something that like eight or nine-year-olds mm. are going to be particularly drawn to. But they, but they might be drawn to cleverness or they might be drawn to something which they think their parents are going to approve of if they're reading it because it's got this kind of air of cleverness about it and and it's that sort of trading off going on. Maybe. I think there's an element, actually, a lot of what Lemony Snicket trades on is the idea that your parents don't want you to read this because it's in some way quite... Um, Rubbish. Yes. <laughs> uh, no. I it, Beast it, Quest it, kind of trades <laughs> on those as well. <laughs> I don't know. Beast Quest is great uh, in comparison to some things. Um, uh, the uh, certainly in comparison to some of the magical puppy lost in snow books. Um, oh dear lord! Yes, true, true, uh, true book title. Mm. Um, well, I think it's in in kind of a it, the PG version of um, the same way that your parents wouldn't want you reading Stephen King when you're twelve. Which all twelve-year-olds do exactly. Yes, yes. Except this is for the nine to twelve crowd. Yeah, mm. so a little earlier. So, uh, so it's people, people, children who are reading under their own. They yeah. make their own. They essentially making their own choices and reading their own books. And I, I mean, I do think that is quite an important um, step because I mean, Tom's little pile of books over there are books that you will be reading to litter. Yeah. And so the relationship is is different, quite apart from the fact that, I mean, Lytton demands the books he demands, so you can't just read him anything. You couldn't say from now on it's little goody two-shoes or nothing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, the, the way it works is that we'll bring a book. He gets to bring a new book home every day from nursery, um, and then also new books come into the house from the library, which he chooses, and from... And then we buy him them. And the ones that we buy, there's an element of our choice in them. But then it's it's anyone's guess, you know. And one of the things that I find fascinating about children's literature is the sheer randomness of the stuff that kids pick up on. Um, so so my, my approach as a parent is, is just to kind of seed as many different kinds of things as possible and, and, and see which get picked up on, um, rather than attempt to sort of say, well, look, here's a, you know... I mean, if he likes, if he likes, he likes the, the, the person who writes the Gruffalo, Julia Donaldson. He likes all those kind of things. And she's clearly got something in terms of, you know, they've got quite familiar, comforting cadences because they're all written in, in rhyming couplets generally in a kind of verse style. And they don't really have morals, so to speak. But, um, but I think, yeah, he's, he's kind of, he's on the cusp of choosing. He can't read, but he's, he's he, 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 knows exactly what he wants and he won't listen to a story that isn't what he wants he'll say no that's boring no don't want that what what is at what point 
I mean, how quickly does he discover it's boring and what's he responding to? He dis- I mean, he'll usually give things a go. Um, and I think he he rarely actually says, that's boring, he just doesn't ask for it again. Cause he'll, he'll oh, want right, to get, so he gives it a, yeah. a whole go. But exactly, he'll get to... I mean, sometimes he'll say, no, that's boring, or his attention will clearly wander during yeah. it or whatever, or he's... That's often... Because often he'll he'll take something home from school because it's got a dinosaur on the on the front, and actually it turns out to be a counting book or whatever, and that's not what he... You know, he knows how to count, so... <laughs> he um, He's not particularly bothered by that. Um, but, yeah, and then some things will kind of come... come back and become become favourites, become things, and then he'll kind of drop them and return to them. And So he got very into... Um, and different things will kind of appeal to him at different levels. So the the, the Morris Sendak book that, um, that we got for him very young, In the Night Kitchen, he initially liked just because there were some giant people in it and there was a little boy. And then he liked the idea of being baked in a cake. And then he liked the fact that the little boy got no clothes on. <laughs> when he was falling into the milk so there's kind of and then he picked up on the fact that um the little boy's shouting at his parents because uh, there's a racket going on downstairs so he likes going to you know coming out to the child gate and going you making a racket <laughs> and stuff <laughs> so uh so you sort of he's picking up on different things with each reading and that's that's you know obviously that's a a children's classic but it's a children's classic because it's good rather than being a children's classic because it's been kind of everyone assumes it's a children's classic and I learned to read quite young and I remember the thing I remember most about being a young reader is resisting stuff that my parents wanted me to read I just assumed that my parents knew nothing about books and and had no idea as to what was good so my poor mother used always to say oh read Cold Comfort Farm it was really good Um, and I've never to this day read it just because I thought right it can't be any good then I'm it is read. good, actually. Yeah, <laughs> your mum is, your mom is quite right. Well, exactly, and no doubt, no doubt better than the, the, the equivalents of Beast Quest that I was devouring at the time. Poor old Beast Quest is becoming my watchword. <laughs> you wait when you're trying to get listeners to read books. Oh no, I mean I'm sure. I, I'm, Beast I, Quest and Astrosaurs. Yeah, they yeah. eat them before they realise that there are um, other things. But yeah, not, also presumably before they realise they've read themes. the same thing 60 times. My, I mean, obviously you actually have two sons and so you're their dad and have like a direct responsibility and opportunity to read. I mean, my reading is occasionally for my niece and I run straight away into the problem that I don't know how to read it properly. So that I start reading Ruffalo and Tilly is terribly excited because her uncle, who she is excited about, is reading Gruffalo, which she's excited about. But it's it's a disaster <laughs> because I, I don't know all the voices that my sister does and I don't sort of say things right. And she gets cross quite quickly. Well, not cross, but just sort of like puzzled quite quickly that it's somehow it's all gone horribly wrong. And and yes, just her attention just sort of drifts off, which happen is happens quite a lot anyway. Um, so the ritual of saying it the right way with a book that she's yeah, and it's not just that she's seen the book, but watched she's watched the little film as well endlessly. So she knows the story back to front, back to front, yeah. And I can't do it justice. Do you think there's an element in the reason that things like Struffle Peter and Edward Lear's 
nonsense uh, were popular were because they were written so obviously in verse um, that they would have, whoever was delivering them would have had to have an element of the same delivery to it because they had a meter and they had a rhyme. And so if they were being read to children, whoever was reading them to them would have had to give them so you mean some the, of the, the, the verse the verse actually structures the yeah um, the, the, the delivery the reading to, aloud yeah well I, I i don't know so much about Stormwater peter because obviously we're reading it in english and the to be honest the english translation of the verse is not exactly it, it's, no it's a, it's a bit rubbish sometimes i mean it's quite funny in and it's clear but i don't think Whereas the Edward Lear things, I think the Edward Lear things is one. There's funny little pictures, and he, he, although he was actually um, a very talented artist, um, drew, drew pictures of um, birds and plants and scenes of the uh, the countries he visited, um, and you know uh, exhibited at the Royal Academy and whatever his. Um, the pictures he, the little cartoons he draw look like cartoons from someone who can't draw, which I think is potentially very appealing to children and was quite unusual then. Um, but I think also there's just something very self-contained about his... I mean, he wrote longer poems later, um, but the, the limericks are all... They're tiny little sort of portraits where quite, a lot of the time nothing happens because he does this thing of repeating the last line. Yeah. So he's just stating well I mean the, the first one it's funny for two reasons but, um, the very first one in the very first book there was an old man with a beard who said it is just as I feared two owls and a hen four larks and a wren have all built their nests in my beard and that's it we don't know anything we don't learn anything about you know there's anything. no story the, well, the story is, is just the one thing that happened um, obviously, I'm amused because <laughs> there is an old man in red in the room <laughs> who can tell us about whether he fears this. <laughs> but um, I think that that's, that's quite important to what was the strength of Edward Lear is that actually he, ha he does tell these little stories which just completely lifts it away from something where you're saying that no one is going on a journey in yes. most of these. No learning, no hugs. Yeah, I mean, there are some. There, there's, uh, there's a great one, which I must say I always really loved when I was small. Um, there was an old man with a gong who bumped at it all day long, but they called out, Oh, law, you're a horrid old boar. So they smashed that old man with a gong. I always liked that when I was little. But in fact, in the picture, he, he's just banging the gong. They're not smashing him yet. But that's, it's really unusual for there to be uh, that, that a That is quite a story. Yes. Yeah where he does something which someone else reacts to. It's normally just a, descript a description of a situation. Yes, which I suppose was, was part of uh, what you were saying earlier with Alice. Um, a lot of uh, Alice and Lear having this concept of nonsense. A lot of uh, Alice's vignettes, um, almost with, uh, say, the Mad Hatter, where we don't know why he's mad. We don't know why he's got a hair. Um, and and it's in this setting whereby it's completely acceptable for that kind of... Well, not acceptable, but it, it's in narratively that, in that possible world, for yeah, that kind exactly. of thing to happen because uh, 
yeah, be, because it is but, inhabiting the realm of nonsense. And and those are again standalone things. So is there an element that morality, um, so the non nonsense comes in when you have a narrative for a child? I think that that's. I think that that would be my thesis about it. That if there's a story where people are going on a journey where they have to make choices, then the the judgment of the reader that they've ended up better or worse is going to be related to their decision that to do this was a good thing not in the sense of like a canny idea but like a right the right behavior but to do that was the wrong behavior and i mean i guess in longer stories you see people make bad choices and go down and then have to make better ones and come back up again so that it's it's even more um structured uh, to to for you to make the judgment about their choices mm. and i think that um a lot of leah's stuff particularly seems disconnected enough from that um the postcards it, partly that and even the longer ones they're just they're strange because he will suddenly introduce well everyone knows that a pobble should have no toes yeah and it's like everyone knows okay everyone knows a pobble should have no toes i mean i haven't quoted that's exactly right yeah. but that's a, a a good example of him introducing a a fact which you have to process which is not really it isn't it has bears no relation to anything that you could possibly understand because there's no such thing as a pobble and the thing that but, he's saying about it is is just the opposite of anything that you would so you're you don't know how to process but that's all he says there's no like backstory to why i mean this is this is what i was thinking when you were talking about the the mad hatter that as a reader you you may not know why the mad hatter is mad etc etc but you you are introduced to the mad hatter the hare and the dormouse and you understand the relationship between these three characters from their actions very quickly so it's it's to what extent the child mind is or indeed the adult mind is imposing structures on apparently non-rational behavior and is this stuff that children are doing all the time anyway and one of the interesting things about children's literature is the extent to which it's being written by adults who are back projecting their understanding of how children think and how children relate to the world and this is why when it fails when it comes across as patronizing or or too winky or whatever it's it's really glaring and kind of you know there's something there's nothing more and i because i read a lot of children's books now especially picture books and that there's nothing more wrong and kind of off than a, a a book that's getting its readers wrong and that is kind of charlie and lola Pat yeah patronizing in the wrong way i mean charlie and lola has bits that are kind of that are, that, are, that ring true and bits that don't yeah. um and a lot of it doesn't but 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 there's just this sort of when you get things that are kind of like you really notice when it's being done badly um and as a, I mean, as as a bookseller, Julia, do you are there certain things that kind of you see selling or or not selling to, and is there kind of a difference between what parents think their children respond to and what? A lot of parents, unfortunately, um, seem to expect that I, as a bookseller, know their three-year-old better than they do, and will kind of come. Okay, so um, I want something 
Um, I, I don't. He's he's very advanced. They're always very advanced. Of course, yes. Very very advanced. <laughs> I don't think I've ever had anyone come in and say, "Well, he's a bit dim." Not for many. Yeah, I find that quite disconcerting because what that brings up for me is um, your level of involvement with your child, and this is, I think, what teaches them morality much more than any book ever could is the way you interact with them. Um, so um, it's really, it's a bit weird. They do seem to almost fall into a panic of not knowing, is this good? Is this, is this appropriate? Is this, am I going to ruin him forever if I read him this one? Is this, and I just, I, you know your child best and you, um, you need to know um, how to teach him things then there's no way for me to know. Um, there's nothing blatantly um, that I would say, oh God, please don't do not do that. You do try and steer them away a bit from sort of uh, Charlie beast and Lola beast. and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> Towards Beast Quest. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the people when they come into Towards Beast Quest... Towards the bluntness of Ed Veer. <laughs> there's no morals in that universe. Yeah. Uh, w once they're on the beast quest, they, it's usually too late. They're too far down that path. Um, it's Sometimes they're so happy just to have their child reading. He really likes to read. Oh, that's great. Good for you. Well done. Um, it's it's quite fascinating to see, but it's it's I, I really do think it's, it's a lot to do with how um, willing they are to engage. Um, with the child, because then even something that maybe isn't fantastic on its own, um, they can take from it um, what they know the child will react to and what will be actually helpful for the kid. And that uh, that sort of taps into a bit in, in something that, because we're hoping that, that maybe um, the discussion of children's literature will, will develop possibly into its own series as, as well as this special. Um, and the idea that there is a gap between books for children, which an adult would not read themselves because these are separate and these are only for the minds of children, um, which I think kind of um, applies to, to slightly more cynical ventures, like we've mentioned it so many times, I might as well carry on, Beast Quest. Um, By Adam Blay. <laughs> <laughs> Real person, not a conglomerate of computers. Um, uh, uh, and a detachment between, uh, particularly once a child starts reading themselves, um, what the adult might look at and enjoy and what the child might look at and enjoy. And I guess that's where you get this split between um, stuff like Beast Quest, which is crafted for children with some psychological idea of it's got a monster and it's got a thing and, and it, it's got... Uh, David Eddings dictating the model of the story. Um, no, he's better than that. Uh, I will grant Always. him that. Um, <laughs> and um, it's got um, you know th these these elements which are crafted to appeal to children um, in comparison to actual proper books, which I often think is when I was uh, working in bookshops, people would come across and say I want a book for a child and they're, they're a three-year-old girl or, or whatever it is um, and 
there would be this idea that they couldn't possibly, even if you gave them a few things to choose from, often people would be confused by the idea that what they might enjoy might also be something that children might enjoy. And obviously there is children's literature that bridges that gap, even in the sort of picture book realm, there's, there's things like... Um, forgotten who wrote slow loris alex deacon deacon yeah so. and um <coughs> the uh morris sendak books um and and numerous others and and obviously further up children's literature there's things like um treasure island obviously is the, is the famous sort of i mean as a watermark as a kind of you know um voracious reader as a child and as a kind of good middle-class liberal parent when I uh, you know when we started a family the thing that I would imagine myself doing when I would imagine what's it going to be like having a child mm. what I'd imagine is reading to them uh, and obviously you know reading to them when they're four or five or six and kind of able to understand the books that I liked so of course you know you're not imagining yourself reading Beast Quest you're not imagining yourself reading the kind of sea spot run stuff that that you read to kind of little you know, very small children, um, and you're certainly not imagining that what you're actually doing is going to end up doing is reading the same bloody thing again and again and again <laughs> until you're desperately, you know, you're improvising Kipper's list of cake ingredients in an attempt to amuse yourself. Um, and, and then writing to Julia Donaldson twice a week, going, more! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but kind of then, then I'm sort of filled with an anxiety of like, well, is this going to be a kind of imposition of stuff that I like? Is this, you know, is the stuff that I found magical, magical because it's magical, or magical because of the accident of circumstance and and upbringing and such like that that I found? And that's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, obviously there there are elements when whenever you you've got um, somebody. Uh, just formulating their taste and, and being introduced to particularly something that you're interested in. Um, and if you were, uh, as I think we all were, um, voracious uh, reader as a child, then there is this idea that, uh, but this was really good, how can you not like this? And I, th I think a lot of um, people have a an idea of something that they want to read to their children, which... If the child says, "Oh my God, why would you ever read this? This is so boring," um, w would be quite horrifying. So I, I guess there's a, a lot of safety in things where it's like, "This is entirely intended for children and is uh, completely safe," and this is what you're meant to give the age group. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I was sort of lucky and perhaps a bit unusual in that I grew up in a family where. There were so many books just around, not just in my parents' house, but in their parents' house. And my dad, had um, he had two sisters and a brother. So there was, there was just a ton of books around. And so we were allowed to sort of explore. And I don't remember ever, there ever being one where I was pointed at a book and I started it and found, found it unsatisfactory they were always kind of interesting and but there seemed to be such a profusion of things anyway that it wasn't really there wasn't the pressure was off a bit and i mean i, I recognize that that's a bit of a unusual situation 
Possibly not at this table. <laughs> well, possibly not. But I mean, it's still. I still don't remember the thing that you were saying about thinking your mum didn't get books. I mean, I didn't. That you know, there were lots of things my parents were not on the same wavelength as me about. But I never had that feeling for a second about either of them. They liked different books and whatever. But it, that seemed to be sort of part of the. the oh, conversation. my mum was a massive reader, but yeah. not of anything that I would be. Yeah. Have been interested. In. No. So, uh, by way of wrapping up, <laughs> uh, we have concluded that um, children are immoral, mm. or at least it's probably best not to moralise at them. Although, equally, if you do suck your Unless thumb... Unless it's funny. Yes. <laughs> yes, if you do suck your thumb, then you can only expect uh, to have it removed by an invasive stranger, um, and that's entirely within the law. Um, and uh, beyond that, Beast Quest is bad. Mm. I don't know what Beast Quest is. <laughs> well, I'll have to show you. <laughs> Hopefully by context one can amazing. understand Beast um, But uh, we have run out of time. Um, and so it's now on to a clear spot uh, for the next show. Um, and Freaky Trigger will be back next week. <laughs>